Well, kids, I hope you're back in school and loving that you get that opportunity. Love your teacher and your schools more than ever. Parents, I know that you are right now, whether we're doing virtual school, virtual church, I don't know what, like this world's really weird right now, but, but God bless you all and what, what's going on. So hey, I want to get back uh, into the story that Austin just read for you. And can we, can we give Austin another round of applause for uh, re- doing that reading? I tell any, any young man that just wants to keep reading through the Bible, like you just keep going, Austin. I, I love it. Thank you so, so much for it. And uh, what I love about the story uh, of the, that he read is that there's so many implications and applications for our world today. And so what I want to do is, is go back and, and kind of sit with Jesus at the well again in that story. Like, this is going to take some imagination, like, get your thinking caps on. Like, God really put that on my heart this summer, that way too often, like, when I read, like, I'm trying to grab some information, a nugget of application, like, put in my pocket for the day. But, like, to understand this is relationship, that, that opening the scriptures is one of the things that really does open your real relationship with a real living God named Jesus by his spirit. And when we go back and read the stories, it's... Also to read ourselves into that story and to, that's the invitation of God to go imagine yourself right there. Okay, so let's go back through the story a bit. Imagine yourself there. Kids, you're, you're going to be a particularly good at this where uh, Jesus is going from Judea to Galilee. Um, he, he's taking that trip at this particular time. Those are two areas that maybe they don't mean much to you, but the, the point is in Judea, uh, he is gaining more popularity than John the Baptist is, which means he's pretty soon to gain more persecution than John the Baptist did as well. And knowing that Judea is actually the region with the religious leaders that are going to kill him one day, he's like, this is a little too early, I got a few more things I got to do. So I'm going to take on over to Galilee, which is more like, uh, uh, like an agrarian fishing kind of culture, things like that. Between the two is another area called Samaria. And these three kind of function like counties, just like Milwaukee County, Racine County, Waukesha County would all have like distinct vibes and features to the way people interact there. So too in Jesus' day. And as he's traveling through Samaria, he looks for a rest stop at a well. He chooses to sit down there. And, and in sitting down at this well, it's not just any well, it's Jacob's well, a well that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Uh, these are founding fathers of that nation. So it would be a little like us visiting Abraham Lincoln's childhood home or standing on the edge of the Potomac or sitting on the stump of Washington's cherry tree if such a thing ever existed, right? Like there's like some heritage going on here, but it's way, way bigger because instead of just the national heritage, there's a faith heritage here. Everything that God is doing in this world and everything that we know about him has come through that family tree, starting with a guy named Jacob. And so like Jesus is sitting there just like... Breathing in everything that that means. In the meantime, the disciples are hungry, all right, which I appreciate. They've been on a road trip. It says it's noon. I get hangry. So to each their own on how they're going to refresh themselves. Jesus just wants to sit there and take this moment in. The disciples got to go find some grub in town. But Jesus also has something bigger on his mind. He has someone on his mind. A woman is coming, and he's waiting for her. He's got himself sit here, sitting here at the well at such an angle where for her to come to the well, he's going to have to go through her. Uh, he, he wants, he's never met this woman, but he very much does want to meet here. And uh, so as he comes, as she comes forward, Jesus asks her for water. That's the deal with wells, right? Like, you don't just go grab someone, someone needs a bucket. She's got a bucket, Jesus doesn't, no bucket, no water. He asks her for a drink. 
And uh, she's surprised by this interaction at many, many levels. But that introduction is what begins a conversation that by the end of this all, she's going to go back and say, this is the man that told me everything I ever did, everything I've ever been, everyone I've ever been that to. This is where it all began. And Jesus is like, here, like, you sit down. I got a space right next to you here at the well in Samaria. Why don't you sit down with me here and let's talk about some areas of your life that you're not used to talking about. So, some areas that nobody is comfortable talking about. Some, some areas that everybody needs to talk about and hear God's voice and welcome his transformation in their life. Come sit with me at the well again. And I imagine her sitting down, uncomfortable at first. And she just takes on so many big talk, topics. They talk about heritage and how their different backgrounds have such a, an entrenched dividing line between them. They talk around the issue of sexism and how, how surprised the disciples are to see that Jesus has made introductions with a woman uh, when they return. They talk about religion, where it's gotten confusing, maybe even misleading and uh, in many of the ways that people have taken it. They talk about marriage and failed marriages. There's like so many topics that happen here at the well. Uh, any of these topics would be great topics for us. And I love how as Jesus talking to her, it totally transforms this woman's life. She does not leave the same person she came. And it's so transforming that this conversation at the well with Jesus becomes the conversation she has with other people in the city, in her circle, and it transforms the whole city. That's like my picture of what Jesus does inside of us. Conversational transformation that they can't help but spill everywhere else. As much as I like to take on every single one of those topics, the one that I really want to talk about today is the topic that Jesus went after that was the boldest and the biggest one in his day. He talks to her about race. Uh, see, this woman is a, a Samaritan. A Samaritan is a race other than the Jewish race that Jesus is a part of. Uh, a, a race that every Jew would have been taught, indoctrinated, educated, and generally, generationally cultured into looking down upon that Samaritan race with prejudice, bigotry, and racism. That, 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 there was no race that was more hated by Jews than Samaritans. Jews thought of them as sellouts. They labeled them as half-breeds. Like the heritage, I mean, there's so much that could be said about this, but at one point they were all one nation, uh, one nation under God, so to speak. Uh, but, at, but at some point there was civil war, there was division, and there was conquering invaders, and everyone got deported to different areas. And the, the Jewish southern portion, they, they took it as like their discipline from God. Of Man, God wanted us to get back to focus in on him and focus in on what God has amongst ourselves. And they kind of survived it that way. But the other half, they're like, well, I got spread out, and so I guess I'm going to marry here and marry there and just like mix my heritage with other people's heritage. They didn't like stick to the plan that, that God had given them. So that by the time people come back into the land, one group is like, hey, we're the ones who worked at it. We're, we're the ones who earned our place back in this world and with God. And the other ones, you like, you kind of cheated. And, and, and you, you didn't put in the effort. And you were lazy about it. And you weren't faithful about it. And so there was like, there's this disdain. Like when they saw the other person who looked different from them, they're like, you're like a mutt. What are you? You, you collie or you cocker spaniel? Neither? That's right, because you're nothing anymore. 
because you didn't go about it the way that we did. That was the Jewish posture towards a Samaritan, to the point of which the woman says, that you guys don't even ask us for a drink. You won't share a cup with us. What's going on? So the, the woman is surprised sitting at the well with Jesus that, that this conversation is taking place. And the disciples come back, and they're surprised to see Jesus talking with her. And the whole city is surprised to see that Jesus is talking to her and to them and all of them because it's at the well that Jesus sat down in the middle of the racism and the prejudice and the tension of his day right there in the hot seat to talk it out. And I believe we're back at the well again. Doesn't it feel like that? That, that, that as Americans... As Christians, we're sitting at that same well, needing to listen into Jesus and say, what on earth do you have to say about race? Because it's a, it's, it's a mess and it's a crazy all around us right now. There's one line here in the story that I really want to emphasize when someone underscored it for me. It really kind of plowed me over. One line that I think needs to hit home for us all. Uh, today it's verse 4, and it says, Now he had to go through Samaria. He had to. Now, uh, understand this. Jesus, Jesus didn't have to have to go through Samaria because the average route of someone traveling from Judea to Galilee in that time well, used, to, used to look more like, like this here. Like you would kind of go up and around, cross a river, get around Samaria, cut back in at the end of it all. Was it out of the way? Yeah, it was a little bit out of the way. But it wasn't as big as out of the way of actually going into an area where you had disdain for and disgust towards another race. Not to mention with all the tension that's going on, it's not safe to go through that area because of all the racial tension. It could be physical harm, you could be robbed, there could be emotional abuse along the way. No one just goes through Samaria. Understand, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. But he had to go through some areas of our life and our world that were just too important to him not to. And that's what the topic of race was to Jesus. He had to go there. And I'm wondering if you're coming around and starting to feel the same. I know I am. It feels like you can't bypass it. You can't find your way around it. You can't ignore it. You can't wait for it to disappear someday. We're at the well again, needing to slow down, sit down, and listening to what our Savior would bring us. Listening for His transformation, even in the most bitter, aggravated, and trenched issues that surround the topic of race in our world today. I'm not going to spend a whole series on this. We got other topics at the well that I want us to get to, but at least for today, I want to go back to the story at the well and listen in what Jesus would say about it, about race. Now, and I know when I introduce a topic like this, we all got a little bit of uh, different emotions that go through through our hearts right now, right? Could, is anyone a Blake Slate right now? Just yeah, I'm vanilla. Like this is just normal. No, all right. Yeah, it's we all we all we all bring something to the table, and just knowing that some of those feelings and some of those agitations are out there, let me just kind of do my quickest best job to address a few of them. See if I can hit what's going on in your heart right now. Number one, should we talk be talking about this around the kids? I, I believe absolutely. This, this is their world. They know what's going on. I think they're a part of this conversation. Number two, I'm not a racist. 
That's a common phrase that goes through our head. And you would be absolutely, positively correct in saying that, that you are not. You are God's child. You're loved. You're liberated. You are holy. You're righteous. The beautiful thing about the Son of God given for us is none of us has to carry the label of our sins. But will we not admit we've sinned in this area? A couple times? I mean, I'd be the first to confess that I've had prejudiced thoughts towards another person based on the color of their skin. Uh, I've had moments where I've boxed someone into stereotypes. They do something, I'm like, oh yeah, that's because they're, they're, they're just that way. Okay, I've, I've done that. I've, I've had I've racist labels that I've used. I've laughed at more than a few racist jokes in my lifetime. But just because I've said racist things and done racist things doesn't mean that that's the label that I have to wear because the Son of God gave his life for me. And now I'm seen by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You've got to know that's how God sees you as well. We don't get labeled by our sins. And so this talk today is not to label you with, with yours either. Number three, I'm not privileged. I've worked for everything I have. And no one's doubting that. There's not an easy world. Everything comes with, with work. That's not being called into question. Number four, black, uh, blue lives matter. All lives matter. Very, very true. But can we also say that black lives matter? Should that one be so hard to say? Number five, slavery ended a long time ago. And yes, it did, but there's a lot of things that didn't end that long ago. I mean, just think of the things that were fought for in the civil rights movement. There's people in the room, maybe half the people in the room that were alive during the civil rights movements when other things were still being done and needed to change. Okay, so there, there is still pain that's real that, that, that these generations have seen and are living today. Um, number six, I didn't do it. You know, you look at white supremacist gestures that are out there, or you look at the systems around us today, and you're like, I, I, I didn't contribute to that, or at least not knowingly so. And uh, you know, no one's saying that you did, but what I think we do got to say is that somebody did something to get us inside of this mess. And every society has their systems where it seems like they figure out, oh, I'm going to label these people as the less desirable, and I'm going to put them in less desirable tra- places and treat them in less desirable ways. And our society was no exception to that. And I think we ought to take a look at what that is, expose it for what it is. When, like when you put the spotlight on it and see, this, if we can all say that this is wrong and this shouldn't be that way, well, that gives room to change. Everyone in their right to pursue their happiness in our country should not come at the expense of oppressing someone else's right to pursue their happiness. And so if it is happening, even if you're not the one who did it, let's look at where it did happen and what to be done about it from here. Number seven, is this the white guilt talk? No, it's not. All right, like living in a a 98.5% white community here in Muskego, there's a part for us to play. We got to figure out what that part is, but that part is not guilt. And number eight, uh, they're burning our businesses, destroying properties in cities. And it's hard to know sometimes when we use the word they, like who's, who's really doing this right now. But I appreciate that uh, resentment's building up. It, it, it's a powder keg where anger is building on, on, on both sides, whatever those sides are. And it's, it's, it, it's going to explode and it's going to get worse. And in the middle of all that, let me just give you one line from God, another spot of the Bible that I think is going to bring some perspective to this. And I, I hope that if 
nothing else I said opens you to receive what could be received today. That this line from our scriptures is what would do it. It comes from Joshua uh, back in his time. The man's going to battle. A war is taking place. He's even commissioned by God to be a leader in this war. And unknowingly, one day he runs into an angel. He thinks it's just another guy, and so he like kind of like stands in front of the guy and he he asks them in Joshua five, "Are are you for us or for our enemies?" I almost picture him like with a drawn sword. Like, okay, tell me right now, are, are you on my side or their side? Is it us or, or is it them? Tell me what side you're on. Neither. Neither, he replied. But as, com- as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. In other words, I ain't on any of the sides y'all drone up. I'm, I'm on God's side. That's why I'm here. And that's what you need to realize. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? There needs to be a lot less my side and their side and a lot more time on our faces. There needs to be a lot less us and them, we and they, and a lot more time appreciating that God is on God's own side when it comes to the topic of race. He's not going to take any of the sides as they've been drawn up in the world around us, so stop looking for him too. God gets to speak for himself, and the rest of us get to listen on what he's saying. That's how it is when you stand in the presence of God and his message for us. And granted, I'm the one who's going to try to represent him. Jesus is going to make his appearance in the flesh today, so you're stuck listening to me, doing my best, and it's going to be flawed. And I'm not going to get all the details right. And uh, I, I feel so painfully inadequate to do this talk. But we're going to take a swing at it anyway, and we're going to start somewhere today. And so just like any other week here at Lake Point, extend some grace as I try to represent what Jesus would have for you. In the course of representing what Jesus has for you, I want to do it Jesus' way too. And I'm going to give you the top ten things that I learned on this topic this summer. This summer. Some of them are very objective, they're just flat out fact. Some of them are interpretation, some person's take on it. But these are things that are opening my eyes. And why, why would I start there? Why would I not just jump into what Jesus has to say about it? It's, it's because when Jesus was at the well, a conversation took place. Like there was an understanding of the context and letting the voices that are out there, there speak. And so a very non-news-centered, non-political, non-social media-driven version of what there is to be learned on this issue. Uh, I just want to give you 10 things I learned this summer, either for the first time or in a fresh way that I wasn't expecting. Okay? So, so here we go. It's going to go fast. 1619 was the first slave trade that happened in the Americas. That's 401 years ago. That takes some appreciation that for our country and our heritage, 150 years before we became a country... We had 150 years of history with slavery. That, that just is something for me to appreciate how entrenched that is into the world we live in. Number two, slavery in America is different from slavery in the Bible. Uh, where slavery in the Bible um, was kind of an accepted social construct, it was something where someone could earn their right out of their debt by you know, selling themselves until that debt was paid and they were released someday. The biggest difference between slavery then and the slavery... Now, granted, I'm, I am sure back in Bible times and especially Roman times, there were terrible, hideous abuses of way, the way it was, it was used. Okay, not saying it was pretty. But what I'm saying is it wasn't attached to race back then. Where America was different is... We, with our skin color this way, 
can treat someone else as lesser because their skin color turned out that way. That's different than anything that's referenced in slavery in the Bible. Number three. Uh, when the Declaration of Independence came out, 1776, saying we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That's a beautiful statement of faith. I know not every founding father of our country had faith, but someone did, because that is like, we just look around, we know everyone's got rights, and it's everyone's created equal by God. That's like such a beautiful thing. What I didn't appreciate is when that came out, that did absolutely nothing for a black slave in America. Their, their status didn't change that day what, what, whatsoever. Not to say that some weren't sentimental and that some didn't want it to change, but it just didn't. Number four, uh, the mid-1800s, in the middle of the tensions surrounding the Civil War, uh, some of the most major denominations of Christian faith in America split over slavery. Methodists, Presbyterians, and Baptists. Some said they, they believe so much in the right of people made in the image of God that, that I, I will actually divide against another Christian brother who, who is going to stand for slavery. And so that's a beautiful part of our history is that someone stood up and said, this is so wrong that, that, that we got to take a stand here. But it's also scary to think there was another half of people that believed so much in slavery, they actually attached their faith to it, that they'd rather divide against the church they were a part of than release slaves. Um, number five, the Emancipation Proclamation in the 1860s. Uh, major strides forward, it, so it seemed, but Jim Crow's laws took it back just as quick as it got out there. Just to hear, like, my eyes were really open to see just all the terrible, unexpected ways that people were kept in a near-slavery system. Just even things like uh, one statistic was Starting in 1849, the next 80 years that follow, it's estimated there was one lynching every four days somewhere in America. Just imagine living in that kind of terror for oftentimes for as simple things as I didn't say yes ma'am or no sir in my exchange. And number six, uh, the Ku Klux Klan was founded by the son of a Baptist preacher. And after he became the leader of the Ku Klux Klan, he then went on to be a, a, a preacher himself. That's just messed up when you think about it. Much of what was being declared in the South was pre 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 preserving the Southern way, was preserving the, 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 the Southern white Protestant way. People are mixing faith with some, some really terrible things that went on. And, and I, I didn't realize that. Number, uh, number seven, uh, the North wasn't that great either. Uh, especially when you realize that some places, Milwaukee in particular, the great migration of people out of the Jim Crow South to the North was happening during the Great Depression. You can imagine what it feels like when someone kind of immigrates to your area, jobs are scarce, and you're losing your job. Uh, how, how do you feel about the new group that's in town? Not, not great, and it wasn't unlikely for, for a cross to be burned out front or a brick to go through someone's window because they didn't appreciate the new people taking their jobs and being a part of it. Uh, number eight, I'm embarrassed to say that redlining is a term that's new for me here in 2020. I still don't understand how it works, but the thought that somehow a municipality, a lender, a realtor, average Joes could somehow kind of work to who stays here, who stays there, what opportunities they have. Uh, I'm still learning on that one, but I do know the statistic is that only 7% of the African Americans in Milwaukee own their homes. 
that's just really low. Lower than I would have thought and hard to imagine. How, how do you build wealth? How do you... It, tons of factors in there, right? But it, it, it's just helping me see how big the problem is. Then number nine, uh, in the civil rights movement, uh, I, I always knew that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor. I didn't realize how much he used his pastoralness in, in creating civil rights, just a beautiful thing of training people with the ethic of love of Jesus. And that's where their passive, nonviolent protests were, were coming from. Um, and I didn't realize that he, he did it by organizing churches. He got tons of churches a, around this, and that's what made it the next chapter of, of, of human rights in, in, in our country. But you also get to catch some of the discouraging moments where eight pastors write to him in Birmingham while he's in jail, telling him to stop. Telling him that this is getting too political, that this is getting too divisive, that he just ought to wait it out. And he expresses in his letters from the Birmingham jail, as well as the eulogy at the Birmingham church bombing, just his disappointment with the white Christian moderate. Um, just, and now, what's neat is two, two years later, like he starts expressing just how appreciative he is on how the white church stood behind him. And it like, so it, it showed up. It was late. It wasn't too late. But man, it was just tough for me to realize, man, a great Christian movement was happening and uh, another pile of Christians were trying to slow him down. And in number 10, this is kind of summative of, of the whole thing. Um, it's just, why didn't the gospel lead the change in all places? And why wasn't it quicker? Now, now it did. The, the fact is, racism is better in America today than it is 50 years ago, 100, 150, like boom, 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 right? And a lot of times it was a Christian leader who, who made the biggest difference. It was the Christians that were preaching against, hey, the, these slaves do have souls. You got to let us in to tell them about Jesus. You can't treat them like, like, like they're cattle, all right? They gotta, they, they're going to believe in Jesus. And and then they were the ones that later preached about, you know, the slave trade is just hideous. The things that go on, we got to stop the slave trade. And then it took another 50 years after that to, to, to preach against, like, kinder conditions for those who were in slavery. And then you go to segregation. But it was like, here's the interpretive part. Uh, from talking to a couple of black pastors and reading some books, like, it's, it's hard for them to see that the, the, the church helped out. They did the next most important thing. But they fell short of the next nine things that needed to be done after that. A lot of times the feeling is, yes, uh, you know, I'm, I'm drowning here. And, but getting me one foot closer to the service doesn't really help when I'm, I still feel like I'm nine feet underneath. Now that might be interpretive. And you might not like that it kind of became black, white in the church right there. But I'm just representing that that, that was a hard thing for me to take in. And, and, and that's what was being said. Okay, but what do we do with it from here? And this is where I want to go back to the well. And here what Jesus has to say. I'm, I'm going to share with you three words that our gospel give us, three words that are consistently used in our scriptures uh, to guide how we apply the gospel. It's not going to give us all the steps, but at least it's going to guide us in how to take these steps. And I, I know it doesn't look like i got much time, but uh, you'll be happy to know Jesus is to the point on these, and so I hope I can be as well. Number one, image. Uh, that word right there captures so much of what God has in guiding us forward on topics of race. First page of the Bible says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Did you know that uh, we're only 4%, excuse me, 0.4% 
different one from another. You know, like part of the expression is in the color of skins. That's one of the minute details. But the biology speaks for itself that uh, there can't be racism because there is only one race, the human race. And we're all a part of it. One lineage, one family. Not only do we share the same image with each other as humanity, we share that image with the God that we come from. We have souls, we have purpose, and we have a place in this. We have a worth beyond, far beyond the worth of rocks and trees and even, even your pet dog, right? Much as you love Fido, any person on planet Earth is worth far more than Fido. And that's, that's important. Many of the founding fathers declared their faith in Jesus when they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident. Like, we just get this. We know it. You don't have to explain it to a person. We just know that all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And man, we, we got to take that seriously. And, and push that for all it's worth. I mean, anytime someone's treated with inequality, it's, it's, it's an offense to the God that we came from. Anytime one person is treated by another as lesser, or we don't intervene or do something to, to, to defend the value of someone who's being treated as lesser, that, that's an affront to the image of God. It's treating like the image of God like it's lesser somewhere else. I mean, think of how it played out with the woman at the well. She was treated as lesser by the Jews. She was treated as lesser by men. When we get into her story more, we're going to see how she was treated as, as a lesser woman, even among women, because of her marriage and her morality status. But Jesus is still the one that comes around and says, I'm, this is where I'm going to sit down today. This is the person I'm going to talk to about some areas in their life. That's, that's where Jesus had to go. The image of God is what drives us in the gospel. For the product of the gospel, which is going to look like any it's going to look like equality. Any area that smells like some area where someone is treated as less, we're jumping in. Not, not fairness for fairness sakes. I already taught my kids fairness doesn't exist in this world. Don't go looking for it. But when you value the image of God in another, it's like you're trying to preserve the art form in, a, in another. You wouldn't, you, you wouldn't stand by as someone throws their soda at, at a piece of artwork in an art museum you don't do that with God's creation either. It gets richer. Uh, number two, love. Uh, I mean, that's, this is the big one. Jesus insisted that nothing more emphatically is important than love. Second only to love for God is loving your neighbor as, as yourselves. This is where it gets tangible. Like it says in 1 John 3, if you got love, great. You got to express that love in the way we treat one another. It's got to get into proximity. You got to be your brother's keeper. You got to notice how thoroughly in the story with the woman at the well, Jesus got into her life. He wanted to know her whole story. He wanted to sit down with her, identify with her, and that's us too. I mean, look at how this jumped over to the story of the Good Samaritan. We're talking about Samaritans today, right? So like, if you remember that story, the Good Samaritan could have just walked around the person who was beat up and, and, and on the ground like everyone else did. But at risk of all the socio-political implications, love drove him at inconvenience, at personal risk, at personal expense to love his neighbor as he would want to be loved himself. And that's the gospel of Jesus right there for all of us. Do we want to be like the priest that walks around the guy on the road? Do we want to be like Jesus who could have walked around Samaria like everyone else? Or do you want to be like Jesus who says, that, that's where I had to go. 
And it's going to look like picking up your cross and carrying it right now to go there. Does that look does, does that look unexpected? Whereas was anyone not expecting to carry their cross and following Jesus in this world? I'm not sure how many people are meant to be activists in this room, but I do know that we all got a voice, and we, and we can use it. And I don't know what topic gets you riled up the most: education, housing, employment, the super hot topic of law enforcement right now. And I'm not even saying what you're supposed to say on the matter. I'm just saying that when you say it. It does matter. The more you get educated on the issues out there, the more you turn around and apply the image of God and the love of Jesus to those issues. You become your brother's keeper. You're supposed to get defensive when things are out of order and then you need to come back in line. It's something passionate about you standing between another person and the way it really ought to be. That's what I think it means to have to go there in some areas where we just have to be heard. And we're going to put a reading list online if you want to go to our website, some of the books I've been reading this summer and the partnerships I'm working with there, there right now. Uh, third and finally, unity. Uh, this is where our gospel takes us. John 17, 20 and 21, Jesus is praying, also for those who will believe in me that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Like he's like pulling the parallel of the beauty of the, the Trinity. God's union within himself. And he says, I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. And that prayer continues out throughout the decades when Paul and others start writing like it's just one of the things they're most passionate that the glory of God would be seen when one believer treats themselves within, in the unity of being one with another one. Or as we read in Galatians chapter 3, one of the most powerful ones, so in Christ, Jesus, you are the children of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's no races left here. There's there's neither slave nor free. There's no, no status that's left here. There's neither male nor female. No sexism that can take place. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The glory of God in the gospel is when he brings us back uh, together. And he looked at Jesus. He didn't, he didn't treat it like it was an issue. He treated it like it was people. He didn't get caught up in the Jew-Samaritan debate. He wanted to know the woman who, for who she was. Tell her who God was in her life. And that there's living water for, for all people. And, and that's what I think we can do with the gospel. Bigger than anything else. You know, my, my, one of the best things my parents did for me at an early age, uh, they got me involved in the Milwaukee Rescue Mission. Uh, I, I played in a basketball league there. Ten teams, hundred kids, only five white kids. And I was one of those white kids. And how great to be in an environment for several years where... I got to realize, yeah, there is a big difference on culture, but there's no difference in humanity. And and can't we do that as a church? Like, there's so many ways we could partner. I'm going to give you three of them right now. This is like stuff you can actually do. One of my buddies, Brian McKee, pastor of City of Light Church, he's going to do a a four-week missional community online. And I'm encouraging my missional community to join that missional community for four weeks. Four weeks of race discussions online in a multicultural setting. That's on our events page, or excuse me, that's on our race page right now. How cool would it be to just jump in and meet some real relationships that way? Just for four weeks. Number two, like there's some partners that, that I'm starting to get excited about. Next Saturday, I'm going to join Bridge Builders and a pastor who's planting in the city center of Milwaukee to, to kind of do some home rehabbing. You want to join me? You can, or 
once again, Brian McKee, he's got some multi-ethnic nights, whether it's uh, dinners or worship nights coming up. Uh, th- those are great places to start as well, where the, the church is saying, here's opportunities for relationships to go across things. And, and don't get me started talking about church planning. I, I hope you're encouraged to know that of the three churches that Lake Point's been influential in, in planting, two of them were working through pastors of color. 80% of the church planning dollars we've allocated have gone thus far to helping pastors of color plant their churches in a multi-ethnic setting. I'm dedicated to keep going after that. And we're finding new partnerships where it doesn't just look like partnering. It looks like you teach us how to do it, and that changes how we plant stuff. And it, I guess, Here's what I'm saying. Unity. To have unity, you got to have relationships. And to have relationships, you got to have reconciliation. Where uh, Not everyone in this room is going to turn out to be an activist, but I do know that everyone in this room, by the love of Jesus, can become a reconciler. To open yourself up to a relationship with someone else in the third most segregated city in America. That, that, that's part of the problem. Is this, this doesn't happen at the end of your driveway. You don't meet that many people that look that different from you. And so... Yeah, in in Jesus, it's going to take going out of our way. And it's going to take welcoming people into your life and the places that you work and that you play and and that you live. To be reconcilers. To be people of love. The church can lead the way in that. This is where love's going to cover over a multitude of sins. I I know I'm kind of talking long here, but, but let me just say this. like, There's so much anger and so much hate that's going on just like any argument in your marriage that ever got fixed, someone had to be the one to stop arguing and say, I love you more than this argument. I'm either going to be the one to say sorry or stop arguing about it. And I'm going to cover it over for this argument with my love. We get to be that. Because that's what Jesus was to us. He covered over the multitudes of sins in my life. He covered over the multitudes of sins in so your life. He's covered over the multitudes of sins that you see on the news and that you feel like are coming at you. Like, love is covered over this already because of Jesus. And you got to tell me, tell me that that still counts for something. Tell me that the Son of God given for us and His gospel still counts today. And if it does people that wear his name let's change something I'm embarrassed to say that a lot of my prayers have shifted over to my grandkids why because my kids have already seen it right like I, I I'm glad I, I, I live in such a privileged generation like being in the 40 somethings I get the privilege of living in the decades that followed the civil rights movement and what Martin Luther King accomplished and then I get to hear these, these foreign awkward stories that sound so primitive about segregated seating in restaurants and counters where you, you couldn't have both colors sitting next to each other drinking fountains and restrooms labeled by, by color backseats the bus system voting privileges like I, I hear about that stuff and I'm like it sounds like it's from another planet. What planet was that from? It was this planet, this country, just 15 years before I was born. And I praise God, it sounds like forever ago. And my prayer is like the, the, like the first kid that gets born in 2021, grows up in a world where he just hears about how weird it was in 2020. 
how a statement like Black Lives Matter had like a hundred of question marks around it. Or what does that mean? Or who can say that? Or why would they say that? Or like that people were either afraid of the police or afraid to become police. I hope that the first kid of 21, 2021 has no clue how that could ever have been. The world that they grew up in. But to get there, we got to make sure that the church is not the last one to move on it. I believe that we could be the first one to move. That we could be the ones to take the lead. Not just with the next most important step, but with the ten most important steps that are in front of us. Whatever those steps are. I don't even know what those steps are, but I know that they will be guided by three words. Image, love, and unity. So please pray with me. God, I'm sorry for anything I misrepresented. Sorry for how long I talked today. I believe you got something for us here in Muskego, Wisconsin and here in Lake Point Church. So I pray that you lead us forward with what you have. Do something in us that's bigger than just the hearts. Help us take the practical steps forward in you. In Jesus' name we pray for your change.